episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant, health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, is a repeat of last week, Dr. Dominic Vachon, a Notre Dame psychologist with us for the second part, talking about compassionate care in medicine. I was so happy he was willing to come back. So am I. And this is a special event because this will be the number 100 episode of Dr. Doctor. You've got to catch them all. If you haven't heard some of the older stuff, there are some real gems in there. We've gone out of our way to not do too many repeats. So if there's a topic that you wish that we had covered, there's a very decent chance that it's been covered in the past. Please go online and check out our podcast. Well, in this episode with Dominic, we're going to dive more deeply into what compassionate care looks like. So to lead into this, I found an article online by a a physician who's made it her number one goal professionally to help reduce the scourge of physician suicide. Uh, Her name's Dr. Pamela Weibel. And uh, she and a colleague uh, did an article on um, what doctors secretly need from patients and what patients secretly need from doctors. So I wanted to have a conversation with, with Andrew here to see if these five top needs of what physicians supposedly need from patients fits with his experience. Yeah, I was I was excited to see that article that you found, Tom, and I think that she got it mostly right. You know, if I was going to make up a list like this, I like how she said secretly, because a lot of these are, are kind of even subconscious, I think, on the behalf of the doctor. Yes. Although the ones from the patient's perspective are very conscious, I think. I think patients know exactly what they need, and it's it's kind of easy to pinpoint sometimes why they get disappointed with medical care. Well, the, the number one need comes from the fact that confidence that physicians supposedly once had has really been deconstructed or devolved or reduced by the way our society has changed. And so right now she says that the number one need that we physicians need from our patients is validation and, and confidence from the patients. Did that uh, resonate with you, Tom? Yes, because if a, a patient doesn't think that I can do something right for them, there's no reason to continue the conversation. Yeah, that's a good that's a good perspective on it. You know, it is one of those things, and I, I think part of it is medical training as well, but also the, the advent of Dr. Google, yes. uh, where a lot of times uh, on a regular basis, people come into me with the diagnosis they found, their prescription, and they just need me to sign it. Like, why, why am I even here, you know? Right. So if a patient comes in and I'm wrong till I'm proven right, that's no way to have any kind of relationship. Well, it's not going to be a relationship built on trust. And that, no. I think, is going to frustrate the doctor and the patient. But as I've told to medical students or younger physicians, it's like, in general, the vast majority of patients are, want to like you, want you to be right. And so it's... It's ours to lose their trust in general, which is a good thing. Sometimes I try and remind myself of that, especially if there's a difficult encounter for whatever reason. I try and remind myself, you know, they they chose to come here. I've just got to try and do my best, and hopefully it'll work out, you know. Uh, The second need here I really liked, and that's the need to have a chance to get it right. In, In other words... Some problems are so difficult, we're not going to figure it out the first time, and it may be a long process. I think that's true. There's there's nothing like that feeling of getting a win, and I, I think as a physician, you've got to hang on to those because a lot of things, if you're treating somebody's diabetes or obesity, this this is a long game. You're, it's rare that you're going to get these you know banner days. But when you do get those, it's really important. It's like the patient who comes in, well, I've been in to see six other dermatologists who couldn't figure it out, but I know you can. Yeah. <laughs> that is Usually I start that conversation <laughs> with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start it right out and say, I'm not smarter than those other six people. And yes. I, I'm probably working with the same set of tools they are. Maybe, maybe we can discover more together. But, you know, that, that's a big burden to put on you too. <laughs> it's a big burden. But if you're somebody with a problem like that, the thing that comes to my mind is something I learned in my internship from a second-year resident in surgery, and that the buck stops with the one who cares the most. So even if I can't figure it out, my goal was always to find someone I thought could add something to the the diagnosis, the care, the treatment of the patient that I couldn't offer. There's, There's no such thing as a hopeless case. 
There's right. always hope. But there might there might be cases where I realize I don't know enough to get the patient where they need to be. Uh, the third thing would be, uh, you know, that we want to make a difference. We want to know that we made a difference for the patient. I've got to say, Tom, I would have put that as my number one. You know, so many people get into healthcare, physicians and, and everybody on the healthcare team, because they want to help people. And so much about your job, whether it's the EHR or or even just kind of routine day-to-day tasks, you, you don't get that feeling that you've really helped people. But man, I got to tell you, when I get one of those people, it makes my week. And, oh, yes. And a lot of times you might go weeks without having somebody who you really can help them and they really realize your help and they appreciate that. Well, that's our version of what Mark Twain said when he uh, remarked that he could live for two weeks on a good compliment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's something to that. So that is the reason we went to medical school. It's not just to learn something uh, intellectual or scientific. It's because we want to make a difference. The fourth need uh, that we have is um, trust from patients. And we see that trust when a patient follows our recommendations for their treatment. Yes, that's and, you know, there's a lot of reasons people don't follow recommendations. I know even what we talked on a previous show, maybe 40% of the time people don't even pick up the meds you prescribe, you know, in general. It's so important that if you do disagree with the treatment or or if you know you're not planning to follow it, bring it up at the visit because doctors, I'm thinking to myself, I've got no other interest other than helping you. And so if there's something about a plan that's recommended that doesn't seem right to you, bring it up. We'll find something that fits better. That is right, because if you're not going to believe what I say, why are you even seeing me? Uh, but if you have questions, there's something I don't know, a, a black swan, something that you know we need to know to make a difference for you, please let us know. Otherwise, uh, it's not good for either of us. And then the uh, final thing is to realize that we're just as human as you are. See us doctors as human beings. That's why in my my patient care rooms, I have a bunch of pictures of my family on trips and at home, et cetera, because I'm a person just like you. Yeah, it's it can be very difficult and and it really I don't know, it, it wears me down sometimes. I've I've had patients actually somebody told me one time that it doesn't matter if you have a family. Your first job is as a doctor, and you shouldn't be unable to see or render care when they need it. You know, even even if it's at the expense of your family, you shouldn't have had a family if you wanted to be a good doctor. And uh, that's a heavy burden. Yeah, it's 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 an impossibility, and it's really not even prudent. Mm-mm. But those things are out there, so do do try and give us a little grace when we fall short. Now, the five things that patients secretly or not so secretly need from physicians seem to make sense. Number one thing is be heard. Yeah, that's definitely number one. And we, we talked with Dominic last time and, and yes. some of the data. People just want to be heard. And there there's a statistic that I know Dr. Fernandez, Jesus Fernandez, has quoted many times to me about uh, being interrupted after 17 seconds. That's the average for doctors interrupting patients. 17 seconds. And so I, I've tried to make it a rule for myself that when I go into a room, I immediately ask them, how can I help? And give them at least 17 seconds and really <laughs> as long as to get what's off their, get something off their chest. Even if the MA already told you what it is, even if you already know the answer, it's important to hear it from them. And it's important for them heard. to be able to say it. Yeah. Uh, the second thing patients want is to be believed. So I find myself saying that a lot to patients. I believe you. I might say, I have not seen this or I only seen this a couple times in my career. I believe you. Let's try to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's worth saying it, tell you the truth, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of times, I mean, doctors get lied to, and a lot of times we're skeptical. Scientific people are skeptical to begin with, you know? And so I think it's important for patients to know that you do trust them and that you guys can work towards a, a goal. You know, a third one that patients want is to feel valued. And in this article, one of the ways they most feel valued, and it's very simple, is that we use the most special word in the English language when we're speaking with them. Their name. Their name. That's right. You know, it's you'd you'd find it hard to believe how you can take such intimate encounters as a run of the mill. But unfortunately, especially doctors suffering from burnout, that's something that we see routinely where it's 
quote unquote, another gallbladder in room, whatever. Right. You know, you can't depersonalize. These are all human beings. Uh, the fourth thing that patients want is to feel empowered in making decisions. They want to be part of the decision, but not necessarily the whole decision. In other words, they want input. Right. Presumably they came for a reason, and then hopefully you can do a good job serving as a counselor. Right. So we come up with a treatment plan together that's empowering and, not, and don't recommend something that you know a patient's not going to do. Yes, that's correct. They need to have buy-in. Otherwise, we have to find something else. Or the worst-case scenario is agree that I'm not going to be the, uh, a good physician for you for this problem. But that's a last-case uh, thing. That ver- rarely happens. And then the final thing is uh, what do they want? They want to feel better. Now, it's surprising that they put this fifth on the list that they had four things in front of to feel better, which is what most doctors assume the patient wants when they come to the room. Right. A lot of doctors look look at problems as something to be solved. But as my wife has taught me, sometimes <laughs> uh, the s- solution is not the, the biggest issue. The biggest issue is being in the problem together. And that actually taught me a lot about caring for patients. Marriage teaches me a lot about caring for (laughs) patients, too. Yes, I'm always learning. Well, before we go to our break, I have a medical trivia question that's going to deal with uh, this subject. In fact, it's something that Dominic actually um, has touched upon or will touch upon. There was a 2011 study, there there have been many like this, but published in a magazine journal called Academic Medicine. About 900 patients with diabetes had blood tests performed. It's a test that tells how well their blood sugar has been controlled over the last three months or so. And the patients were grouped into the categories of good, moderate, or poor control of blood sugar. Then they took these patients' physicians, and these physicians did a test to determine their own levels of empathy. And they were grouped as high, moderate, or low levels of empathy. Then the money part of the study was looking, was there a relationship between the empathy level of the physician and the blood sugar control in the patients? So doctors who scored low in empathy had patients with a good blood sugar level 44% of the time. So my question is, If the doctor scored high in the level of empathy, what percent of their patients had good blood sugar levels? Remember, doctors with low empathy, their patients 44% of the time had good blood sugar levels. Was it 44%? Was it more? Or was it less in the patients of those with high levels of empathy? And again, you'll have to wait till the end of the show to find out the answer here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with our guest, Dr. Dominic Vachon, who is a uh, PhD psychologist. He's been a practicing psychologist. He now is helping form the next generation of healthcare leaders at Notre Dame and in uh, South Bend, Indiana. He uh, now heads the Ruth M. Hillebrand Center for Compassionate Care and Medicine at Notre Dame, and he is the uh, author of the recently published book, How Doctors Care. The Science of Compassionate and Balanced Caring in Medicine, published in August of 2019 by Cognella Press. Dominic, welcome back for version two of your show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me back. Oh, you're welcome. So I know a phrase that you love to talk about is that human beings are built for compassion. What does that mean? Uh, In many ways, we've known this for thousands of years. But with this new science of compassion, the biology of compassion, the neuroscience of compassion, it's become very evident that we human beings are built for compassion. And by that, I mean that we're built for interdependence. Um, Everything that's successful about us requires that we cooperate and nurture each other. And our biology is literally geared toward being able to hear when each other is not doing well and responding to that. Our whole biologies are geared uh, for uh, being there for each other. Well, you kind of summarized Darwin last time in saying something that most of us have never heard, that it's really not survival of the fittest, but survival of the kindest. Yes, it's Dacre Keltner's phrase, but it's built, uh, it's based on Darwin, and a lot of people don't know that about Darwin. Uh, And he said something to the effect that communities that had the most sympathy among their members would be more likely to succeed. 
Uh, and a lot of people do, just don't know that about Darwin. They they think of Darwinian in terms of, you know, dog-eat-dog, survival yes. of the fittest. But when it came right down to it, uh, Paul Ekman did this research and discovered that Darwin is like, no, you know, if you're, now these are our words, if you're, if a community is truly compassionate, it is more likely to survive. So they, they say nice guys finish last, but if you have a whole group of nice guys, they're going to do better. <laughs> well, you know, I, and there's even research out there that when people are looking for friends, for lifelong partners, for spouses, uh, what they want is reliability. Uh, they want somebody that they can count on. They want somebody who's going to be there for them, who's going to care for them. And that, uh, that's what we really want in the people closest to us. So in many ways, nice people finish first <laughs> when you come right down <laughs> See, to that's, it. See, that's good news. I, and, you know, Dominic, one of the things we talked a lot about last time was sympathy and empathy. I wondered if you could briefly mm-hmm. remind us the distinction there. You know, uh, that's really great that you're asking that because people are using these terms differently. And in any discussion you have with people, it's always good to say, what do you mean by that? Because sometimes people use uh, a word and they just use them interchangeably. The way I use them is that um, sympathy is a state where it's the same feeling. You identify with another person's feelings. So their feelings are your feelings, and it's hard to separate them out. So when they're really sad, you become really sad. When they're really angry, you become really angry. And empathy is more like understanding what it feels like for the other person and what, and what their perspective is. So instead of, it's not identifying with their feeling, like it's your feeling too, it's really trying to understand their perspective and what they're going through. So it's not, uh, you're, you're able in empathy to separate yourself from the other person. So like when you're with somebody who's really going through a hard time, and sympathy's not a bad thing, it's a, it can be a good thing, but if you're trying to help somebody and you're, you're, having sympathy in the sense that you're feeling the same thing they are, it's going to be very hard for you to help them because you're going to be overwhelmed by all those feelings. In empathy, you're like going, hey, I'm here for you. Help me understand what you're going through. Um, And so you don't lose a sense of yourself, and that means you might be more helpful to the other person. And did you say that empathy is something we don't have to learn? It's something natural? Uh, well, we're built for it in, in, in the sense that our, uh, if you have reasonably good parenting and caregiving in your life, your brain, your whole physiology is geared toward empathy. So it's not something you turn off. It's really something you have to turn off uh, because whenever we see suffering, when we see somebody who's crying, when we see somebody who's angry, we immediately pick that up. And in fact, I was just looking at this one study where they were tracking facial muscles. And when somebody else looks happy or sad and their face reflects that, unconsciously, the person who's observing them, their muscles actually go in the same direction. And that's automatic. Isn't that incredible? That's the way we're built. So this brings us to a point that medical students, when they're applying to medical school, they're being evaluated on their empathy. And yet yes. studies show that the further along we go through medical training, the more we, quote, turn off that empathy you talked about. What in the world is going on? You know, it's, that's a complicated question, and I don't think we have a definite answer. But I, I think a couple of things are definitely going on. One, I think when people shut down their empathy, it's a self-protective move. They're, wow. they're really overwhelmed by the system. They're overwhelmed by difficult patients, difficult situations. It, it, it's a self-protective move. But the other thing um, I've seen is that it's also, it can be a stage uh, where, you know, becoming a helper, especially in like in medical professions, but this is true in everyday life, when you become a helper to other people, you have to kind of learn how to do that. So if you are helping a loved one that you're caring for in your family or friend, it's almost like a, a muscle that you exercise. 
And so at the beginning, you might be really overwhelmed, like let's say when you have a loved one who's really sick. And then after a while, you get the hang of it. And so I think a lot of times in medical school, it's, it's a defensive move. But I also think it can be a stage where you go, gosh, I have got so many things to learn. <laughs> and emotions might be the last thing I have to learn, but I'm going to have to learn that at some point. Well, and that brings up a perfect point now. I love in your book that you mention that if we walked into a medical school and said, you know, students are just too much to learn these days, so we have to cut something out. So for your class, we're not going to teach the cardiovascular system, but it's okay. You'll be learning all the other ones, so you'll figure it yeah. out. But we really are saying that, but with regard to a different system, aren't we? Yes. You know, I, I forget how this came about, but I think it was with um, residents or medical students and I was sitting there going, what if we just got rid of a system and we said, you know what, we don't really need to study neurology or we don't really <laughs> need to study the cardiovascular system. But what ends up happening is that we say, hey, we don't really have to study human nature. Yes. Um, yes. And then what gets us later on is human nature. Yes. So when we have patients who are having a really difficult time or they're not doing what we recommend or uh, it's, it's really the more we know about human nature, the better we are. Uh, and it's just one of those things where we think it's expensive. We think that, well, you're a human. Uh, you can figure it out, you know. Um, it, it's like we don't really need to look at our own owner's manual. It's like, well, you're a human. You can kind of figure it out. But it's like, no, it, it really does pay to really reflect on what it means to be human. will be way better for our patients. Well, especially as far as compassion goes, you know. We were talking about how empathy decreases. There's a lot of false narratives that doctors tell themselves about compassion, can can you go through some of these and why they're they're wow. not the right uh, way to look at it? There's a lot of, of false things that people say. Uh, like sometimes people will go, well, compassion's just a feeling, or compassion takes too much time, or I think one of my favorites is compassion's going to burn you out. You know, it's like you have only so much compassion money in the bank, it's going to burn you out. Or another one that I really uh, like is when people say, I'm not the compassionate type. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, a competent <laughs> type, right? I'm a smart doctor, but I don't do compassion. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just listened to that, and I'm thinking, you, do you realize how, well, I mean, when, when you study science of compassion, you realize how crazy <laughs> that really is uh, to say that. But those, those are common things that people will say. They'll say, you know, I just don't do the compassion thing. And, you know, I just smile inside and just like, well, okay, let's start somewhere here. Where do those ideas come from? Well, you know, I mean, we all love compassion and caring. You know, and when we want to sell things, we, we talk about how compassionate we are. So I don't care what business it is. When we say you can trust us, we will really care about you. You can rely on us. That sells stuff. And we also love the way that sounds. It, we just, it appeals to us. But what happens is we get really sentimental about it. And so people start saying things like, well, compassion just means you're being nice. And it's like, no, compassion's a lot more than being nice. I mean, sometimes when you really care about somebody, you're going to challenge them. Uh, but I think it, it just kind of becomes part of that sentimentality of, you know, warm, soft things and uh, be kind and, and warm all the time. And compassion includes those things, but it's, it's way bigger than that. You, and, you've and broken it down into four components, right? I, I really liked yeah. how you described that because that gives us an opportunity to practice those. Can you go through those for us? Yes. You know, uh, when you put together all the science of compassion, they say compassion really has four things in it, and it has to have all four of these things or it's not compassion. And the first one is the ability to notice suffering in someone else. And then the second one is that you're moved by it. It affects you. You notice it, and it affects you. And then the third one is it kind of moves into a desire to help alleviate the suffering in the other person. And the fourth part is you actually do that. So compassion is really its emotions, its thoughts, but it's also motivation and your behavior. And 
And the studies are really showing that when people are in a compassionate mindset, they're actually, a lot of people say when you get compassionate, you're losing objectivity. Well, it turns out that when people are really compassionate, they are really emotionally centered. Because when you want to help somebody, if you're distressed, you can't help them. And we're just built like this as human beings. And it, it's, it's true whether you're a friend, a parent, a spouse, whatever, that when people are really compassionate, they are actually very centered. They're, they're able to be relied on in that situation. Now, two words you use often in the book and you describe as being related but different are compassion and care. Can you explain that? Well, thanks for asking that. I mean, this, this, some people might think I'm splitting hairs here, but um, people will use them interchangeably. But caring is this constant background desire, a sincere desire, to, uh, to promote the well-being of others. It's just there. You're ready. You're prepared. Compassion occurs when, some, when somebody's in, uh, in danger, when somebody's suffering, then that caring activates this whole compassionate um, engine, so to speak, uh, in our brains. It just, uh, it, uh, but, but it's because caring is that kind of attention to the other person. We, we do this exercise with um, students or people doing workshops where uh, rock climbing, you know, there's a, uh, the person who's down below who's the belayer. Yes. And the rope, uh, you have the, and the, basically the person who's climbing is hitched up with a rope through a pulley or whatever, and it comes down to you, and you're basically following them with the rope, and if they fall, you catch them. So caring is the constant watching of the person who's climbing, and if they fall, you happen to be ready to catch them with the rope. And, and that's what I think is the difference between those two. Now, you say that your book focuses on what compassion looks like within a doctor or nurse's brain. What do you mean? What is going on in the doctor's brain? Last time you told us about mirror neurons. Would yes. you like to add anything to that? Yeah, yeah you know, uh, it's like when you're in a compassion mindset, um, when you're there, uh, several things have happened. The first thing is, this, this uh, mirror neuron system where you're picking up what's going on in the patient, how they're thinking, how they might be feeling. It, acti it's, it activates the pain matrix in your brain. Right. And then this second level happens, and this is more what we're aware of. And you're stopping, you're like going, okay, what's this person going through? Uh, what am I thinking about this? Uh, what do they need from me? But the other one is more of an automatic emotional uh, connection. This second one is a more like, okay, a more of a thought process. And then the third thing that happens in the brain, so each of these have different regions of the brain. And then when you get into the compassion part of the brain, when that gets activated, these are actually the positive centers in the brain. They're connected with reward, with positive emotion. So it, it taps into uh, uh, when you're helping someone, it taps into these um, these reward connection parts of the brain. So we've talked about uh, these reward centers on other shows where we talk about addictions. Are these the same centers, although used for their true purpose? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, yes, I would say yes, uh, uh, that there's an overlapping to it. In other words, when we are really there for other people, um, there is something deeply rewarding in that. It doesn't work, though, when, we are, when it's out of duty right. or somebody forces us to do it or we do it for selfish reasons. You know, just like, okay, I'm going to do this volunteer work and that'll be good for me. For my resume. Like, no, you, <laughs> you, you actually have to care about the other person. And when you really do care about the other person, one of the byproducts is, there is a reward in that. There's a fulfillment in that. Um, but it doesn't happen when you go, I think I'm going to help you so that I can feel good. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to really mean it. But when you really mean it, 
Uh, oh, yeah, it lights up uh, the reward centers of our brain, the affiliation, the connecting parts of what we like about connecting with others. Um, it's, it's, it's really rewarding in that way. Dominic, that's a great place to take a break on this show. We'll be right back with a little bit more here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and talking today with Dr. Dominic Vachon about compassion in medicine. So, Dominic, one of the main thrusts of your book is you want to give a scientific rationale for the role of emotions in medicine. This is something that's really skipped over in most of medical training. What do, what do you mean by the scientific rationale for the role of emotions in medicine? Uh, yeah. I, uh, one of the ways that we're failing training people in all kinds of helping professions, but especially medicine, is that emotions feel like they're an interference or they get in the way uh, or they take too much time. But it turns out emotions are the engine for um, healing. They're the engine for change. So, uh, well, like on the patient side, you know, lots of people know that smoking is bad for them. They, people know that. But uh, it's when they can really feel it and they go, oh, my God, this is really bad for me. I've really got to change this. When we can tap into those emotions, that's actually an engine for helping somebody change. So we need that motivational structure of emotions to get going. Uh, And the same is true for those of us who are in the helping role. I always think about people, the, the staff going to a code blue. And if you said, okay, I want you to go to the code blue, but I don't want you to have emotions. (laughs) Well, we would just be kind of walking, you know, we would not be in a hurry. But actually emotions are what get us there fast and, and help us help that patient as quickly as possible. So we actually use emotions to really energize us to think better. And I remember this uh, one physician who was teaching residents and a real kind of a curmudgeonly like guy and he was showing lab results at a conference with residents and he says you know when you see lab results like this you, sh- you should be bothered by this you shouldn't be able to sleep at night and I thought it was really funny because it was far from objective detached he was like going (laughs) you you know when you see something and it bothers you it nags at you that's actually really helpful for your patient and then and then the other thing is emotions i mean we have emotions as humans because they're helpful to us Uh, emotions are these huge packets of information where we don't even have to think about things they give us lots of information and and the key for us is to to notice them and and figure out what they're trying to tell us i mean we don't have to follow them but they do give us information so when we feel hurt when we feel angry those are like uh, temperature gauges in the car it's like okay the temperature gauge just went on i wonder what that means it could mean a lot of things. And so in humans, when we have one of those temperature gauge lights turn on, it means, hey, it means something. I've got to pay attention to this. You know, it's, and that's what we need to help. It's interesting because so often, especially I think in medicine, there's this perception of the, the stoic physician mm-hmm. or, or the calm in the face of pressure that's really revered and, and a lot of people aspire yes. to. But that's not an emotional blunting. That, that's just right. staying cool. I mean, the emotions are something that you want to harness rather than subdue. Perfect. That's exactly, that's exactly it. We, a little slogan I use with them is, don't strive for emotional detachment. Strive for emotional regulation. You know, so, for example, test pilots. You know, I love this uh, story about Neil Armstrong when he was in the... Uh, training for the flying the lunar module and he had to jettison very quickly you know uh, test pilots have to harness their emotions to think very fast Um, and uh, but it's emotional composure that we're looking for not emotional detachment if we have emotional detachment boy our patients are in big danger so i'd like you to help me with a, a concrete situation here dominic Engaging emotions. Okay, yesterday I had a situation with a patient where essentially the patient was calling me 
a liar. No matter what mm. I explained or said, and I was getting really angry, and all I could think of was, how can I get this patient to leave my room? What is a helpful way to recognize and channel that anger for the good of a, a compassionate response? Well, uh, what I do, it's interesting that you'd say that because today we had what's called Angry Patient Day in our training <laughs> session. And, Maybe and he was there. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, had, we have simulated patient actors, and we do anger, uh -huh. and everybody gets really nervous about it. Uh, and, right, you know, uh, and, and I say, okay, the most important thing is our mindset going in. And so one thing that's really helpful is that we look at anger as similar to the way we would if somebody were crying. Okay. Uh, in other words, this person is in pain. This person is suffering somehow. Now, it's not going to feel comfortable, but it's really m having an impact on me right now, especially if the patient's getting angry at me. Um, because it feels personal. Yes. Uh, but what helps us when we go in there is to say, okay, something is going on here, and I want to figure out what it is. And so what we try to do is get patients to put their feelings into words. We try to figure out what their anger, what's the temperature gauge light that's turned on for them. Now, we have to have good boundaries with this because it doesn't mean that people have the right to abuse us. Uh, we have to be very clear uh, about that, that that's not what that means. Uh, what it does mean, though, is help me understand what's made you angry. Let's figure this out together. Uh, and, but that's the mindset we have to go in with uh, rather than this is about me, this is against me. And that's a hard thing. That's a training thing. But that's not true just for medicine. That's true in everyday life. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, if you're a parent and your child gets angry at you, whether that child is two years old or 12 years old or 22 years old, you learn that, you know what, this anger is about something. I need to listen to this. And you learn as a parent to hang in with that. Uh, and sometimes that's a hard thing to learn, but uh, we're better when we start learning how to, to hang in and figure out what the anger is. Uh, we go a lot further. You mentioned before about Neil Armstrong and the, the test pilots. You mentioned in your book that the compassion mindset of a physician is like the flying mind of an airplane pilot. What mm. does that mean? Mm. Well, I... I, I I was, I'm thinking like pilots. I'm also thinking of people in sailboats. Okay. So anytime you fly or anytime you're in a sailboat, it's not going to be perfect. And you always have to be ready for something to happen, you know. So it might be a tailwind, a crosswind. Uh, you get bounced around. But the key is you learn how to react, you know, calmly and steadily when you're being bounced back and forth. And I, I, so whether it's in a plane or a boat, you might get bounced to one side, but you learn how to compensate for that. Uh, but it's not like you go, gosh, you know, I had to correct for the wind. Oh, I hate to fly. <laughs> it's not at all what we say, you know. Oh, this, this quote, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on who said it, but it's, a, you know, uh, ships in a harbor are safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Yes. You know, ships are built to be out on the open sea. And so when we are helpers to other people, that's kind of what we're like. We're like going, hey, we're a helper. It's going to be rough seas. And we can, we can hang in with that. We can bounce back and forth, and we know how to trim the sails or change the... Uh, the wings to match what we need to do. Well, and you say that physicians who do this well have superior emotional regulation. What is that, and how do people develop it? Um, well, that's a big question. I mean, <laughs> the, the, uh, superior emotional regulation is really like what you've just brought up about being a pilot or being a sailor, uh, being able to, uh, number one, be centered. So you're, when you're centered, you're able to notice what's going on around you. And when you're able to notice what's going on around you, you can react when you need to react. So um, a person who's not centered is going to just, you know, somebody will get angry and they'll get angry right back. They won't even think about it. 
but when you are have good emotional regulation, you're able to perceive what's going on, to be centered in that, and then you know how to work with that. And so you can use the emotional process to help somebody um, in that. Is there a now, practical exercise that, or action that we can do daily to help improve our centering on what's going on? Well, well um, uh, there's there's quite a few. I mean, there's physical things, exercise. There's psychological things that we can do, uh, and there's spiritual things that we can do. I mean, if I start with the spiritual, uh, it, when we take time every day to be centered, to be quiet, um, to be to notice, to be grateful, uh, to meditate. When we do that, and we uh, we take time to notice what's going on in ourselves notice what's going on in our world, when we take time every day to do that, uh, that enables us to be actually more centered and more able to react well in difficult situations. And, uh, and people with very good prayer practices, and people have all sorts of different ones, when people do that every day, or psychological practices, uh, or physical ones, like going for a run or a swim, uh, these are all ways that we train ourselves to be uh, emotionally regulated and centered. I, I think you bring up a good word there, too, Dominic, with training. I know one of the things, just reflecting on my, my own time in medicine, at the beginning, we're so disarmed by difficult encounters, angry patients, uh, very sad patients. And and one of the things that I've tried to do, a lot of times you can see this coming, is mentally prepare even just for a minute or two beforehand mm -hmm. and say, this is an opportunity for me to try and confront this better than I did last time. And uh, that has, for me at least, given me a lot of positive results because if you, if you know you had kind of a, a chance at something and, man, I wish I could take that back, there's, there's no better way than to do it better next time. You know, uh, I learned by, by accompanying physicians and nurses and ministers uh, what you are talking about right there. I hear all the time where they will say, well, I'm going to do this better than the last time. I call that the clinician compassion mindset. Yeah. You know, that's where you are intending to be compassionate, and you're like going, I am going to really try to figure this out. Or, you know, I haven't been really good with patients who are very angry or very emotional, and I'm going to get better at that. Uh, uh, this, to me, is like the wisdom is out there. When you, when you talk to people who have been helping other people for a long time, it's just like what you just said. That's the uh, compassion mindset that's just growing inside you. And I think the more we go on in our lives, in our careers, uh, we just get better at it. So we, we can't be good at it and perfectly right out of medical school. Uh, this is hard stuff. It takes a long time to learn. Um, you know, any, any kind of helping work does, you know, whether you're a parent, a minister, a nurse. Uh, you're not great at the beginning. You know, it, it takes a while to do that. I, I have another question that's kind of maybe a bit of a tangent, but in regard to compassion and caring, a lot of times these are, are kind of conjure up images of feminine emotions. And mm. in, in medicine, uh, I think there's this expectation that you should practice it in a man's way, you know, maybe more sawdust and motor oil. Um, <laughs> but how, how should a male physician show compassion and care, and how might that be different than a woman physician would? You know, this is really complicated because... People have different expectations of what men should be like and what women should be like. Right. Uh, and then the other thing is, this varies by culture. Yes. You know, so the way we think a man should be in the United States, for example, is actually different than the way we think men should be in another country. And so it becomes really, it gets really complicated, especially because we're a country of many different nationalities and cultures. Um, so, um, when I think about this, the first thing I think of is, I don't know how to answer, well, there's two sides to that. One is, you do, when you're helping somebody, you, 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 uh, you are having to deal with their expectations. Right or wrong, you have to deal with it. But the first thing I start with in a question like that is, 
we are all responsible for caring and compassion. Caring and compassion belongs to both genders. And so that means uh, for both men and women that we're not afraid of emotions, that we believe that listening matters, that being supportive matters, uh, that caring about what people are going through matters. And so we're all going to have different ways by, because of our family backgrounds, our cultural backgrounds. Um, but I think the error we make, especially in men, is we can get into the mode of, oh, you know, I don't do the caring thing. Uh, men don't have to do that. And that, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. It's like, hey, you, if you're a good man or a good woman, you really care about what others are going through. But that can look that can look very different. Now, here's one of the hard parts in that, though. So I guess what I'm saying is, hey, we all need to be there for other people. We all need to not be afraid of our emotions. But sometimes what happens is that we expect men and women, uh, you know, uh, to react differently. So, for example, I'll hear uh, women who are physicians or nurses um uh, They'll sometimes say, you know what, if I don't listen to my patient, I get really um, uh, criticized by them. But when a man doesn't listen well, he gets away with it. Uh And I think they have a really legitimate point there. Mm. And this is where I'm like going with, uh, with the men I work with. It's like, we are not off the hook. You know, uh, <laughs> yes. we, uh, we are part of the human race. We are built for compassion. And that means that you don't get to sign off on emotions. You don't get to sign off on caring and compassion. And frankly, when you do it, in whatever way your culture, your society has reared you to be, when you do it, your life's going to actually be a lot better. Your whole life is going to be way better. You're going to have better friends. You're going to have better marriages. You're going to have better practices. Everything's going to get better. So try it. Well, and you know, Dominic, you bring up a good point about trying it. I wonder if maybe you could give us a concrete action that our listeners can take to improve their compassionate caring skills after the show, maybe as far as like spouses go and a parent with a child. Um, Wow. Uh, Well, there's lots of things I'd love to say to that, uh, but uh, I think the first one that comes to mind is just a, a really good practice. Uh, and this comes from Simone Weil, who uh, is a religious philosopher. And she said, the love of our neighbor, it's something like this, the love of our neighbor can be best summarized in the question, what are you going through? And, and to me, when I am like trying to keep it simple, and I'm trying to like be focused on, you know, uh, who I'm supposed to be for others, that's what I'll start with. I'll just go, what are they going through? And that helps me get clear about what the priorities should be. But, but I think when we do that with our spouses, with our friends, with our kids, with our parents, with our patients, with our customers, and we just stop and, just, and we say, what are they going through? Uh, it, it widens us. And when we understand what another person's going through, generally we'll do the right thing. But when we don't ask that question, I think then it, uh, then that we get distracted. Dominic, but that I, is a think- beautiful, practical point to end this far-ranging interview on. We thank you so much for being with oh. us for a, a second episode in a row of Dr. Doctor. We hope to have you back on again. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for doing this show. You're I appreciate welcome. that. God bless you, Dominic. Okay. We'll be right back with the end of the show and the answer to the trivia question after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the long-awaited trivia question. Yes, this trivia question basically asks, if 44% of patients with diabetes had good blood sugar when their doctors had low empathy... What percentage of patients had good levels of blood sugar if their patient, if their doctors had high levels of empathy? I got to tell you, Tom, I listened to this whole interview. I bet you that they did a better job. You're right. And in fact, Dr. Vashan gave us the answer to this question in his previous episode. Oh, when really? He, yes, because he mentioned in that episode that if a physician connects with the patient, compliance increases 
25%. So what's 25% more than 44%? It would be 55%. And the actual answer was 56% of patients with diabetes had good blood pressure readings if their doctors had high levels of empathy. So if you're a doctor and you want to do better on your quality measures, try and be more empathetic. Yes. Really, not only identify with what your patient is feeling, but try to understand what they're feeling. And, and don't turn off that natural empathy system that we have that we're built for, according to Dr. Vishan. Uh, I think uh, very practical uh, advice on this that can be used in all human relationships, not just the physician-patient relationship. Oh, I completely agree. I hope all our in- listeners enjoy Dr. Vishan, and we'll be sure to have him back in the future. And, and, you know, that very practical question when we're at a loss in a relationship is what to do when somebody's hurting. Just be there and ask them, what are you going through, and listen. And, and if you are bored and you don't know what to talk about at night with your spouse, go ahead and ask him that, and I bet you that will lead to a conversation. They'll say, oh, I'm really not interested <laughs> in talking about that. that. You haven't asked me in so long. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to try that, actually. Well, thanks, everybody, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, and we come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show because that will help new listeners find us. And additionally, be sure to tune in next week for a wonderful interview with Dr. Ashley Fernandez regarding the right to health care. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.